turn them to Revelation chapter 2. This evening we come in our study to the fourth chapter of the seven churches of Asia. And these are churches that have received a special letter from the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the letter we're studying tonight. It's written to the church of Thyatira. It has the distinction of being the longest of the seven letters. And you may remember one of Paul's most famous converts in the city of Philippi came from the city of Thyatira. Anybody know who that was? His famous convert in Philippi. One of them. No, I'm sorry, you're wrong. No, it was, it was Lydia. Lydia, the seller of purple. She was from the city of Thyatira. And uh, this was a city that was known for its production of this purple dye that they used to make clothing with and, of course, also to make the regal robes that they used in the empire. Thyatira was a city that wasn't as well known as some of the others that we've studied, such as Ephesus and Pergamos. It wasn't a real important trade center for the empire, and neither was it a place that was needed for their uh, defense or protection. But there was a church that was in this city, and it was a church that went through much persecution, as all of these churches did. And the persecution came from maybe someone we wouldn't think so much of, and that is the trade guilds that were present in the city. I mean, these were the people that manufactured those dyes and made the clothing, and these trade guilds would control all of the work in the city. And so it was very difficult for a Christian to get a job with these trade guilds. Each of the guilds had a a patron deity. They would have celebrations and they would have feasts to these gods. And Christians were required to attend those and to participate in them. And so it became very difficult for a Christian not to... or. To, to do that, of course, and to serve Jehovah God at the same time and to hold on to their job. So there was a lot of difficulty in living there. Thyatiran Christians were faced with what many Christians are faced with today, and that is, will we fit in with the, uh, with the crowd? Will we go along just to get along, or will we make a stand for our faith, even if it means that we might lose our livelihood? And sadly, there were many Christians in Thyatira that chose to do the former. They chose to depart from their faith. And really, much of that problem stems from the teaching that they received in their church. The leadership of the church was upside down. And whenever you have problems with leadership in your church, that will only lead to greater problems. We're going to read about this tonight. If you take your Bible, look at Revelation chapter 2. Let's stand as we read God's Word. As I said, this is the longest of the letters to these seven churches. And we're going to start reading at verse number 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works. And notice there he mentions their works twice in that sentence and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel. And you might want to underline that one. That woman Jezebel. That's a contemptuous word. Which calleth herself a prophetess. And that means that she called herself a preacher. Folks, she was a preacher. Which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. 
And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Now, I'm not going to really explain that particular verse tonight, so let me just very briefly tell you what this means. When the Lord says he'll cast her into a bed, he doesn't mean this literally as in a bed that you go and lie in, but he's talking about putting her, uh, this, this woman, in, in such a place that those who join in with her uh, teachings and follow her, that he's going to cause great tribulation to come upon them unless they repent. He says in verse 23, And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye already hold, already hold, which ye already have, rather, hold fast till I come. And he that cometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of this word tonight. And Lord, we pray that you might open our eyes to the truth of your word. Help us to learn something that we might guard against in our own church and we might watch our own leadership and be sure that we're following who we should be following. Uh, Bless in the message tonight and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In the Criswell Study Bible, W.A. Criswell has a heading over this particular part of the scripture when she calls the church at Thyatira the corrupt church. And it's not very difficult to see why he calls it a corrupt church when you look and see what kind of leadership that this church had. In a few moments, we're going to talk about the problems of leadership in the church. But first, with, even with all the corruption that was present in this church, we find that the Lord still has some good words to say about this church. In each of the messages to the seven churches of Asia, Jesus is presented in a special way that will particularly appeal to the problem that each church has. Now, to this church, we see that Jesus appears as the Son of God. It says he has eyes of flame, a flame of fire, and feet that are like fine brass. Now, if we were involved in a lot of guesswork about symbols and different things we find in the book of Revelation, we might be puzzled about this, and we would say, well, why does he use such a description, and how does this particular description of Christ fit this church and the problem that they have in Thyatira? Well, one of the things that we would notice here is that there is a change from the title of Christ. He was called the Son of God, here called the Son of God, rather, and in chapter 1, we find him described as the Son of Man. And when Jesus is called the Son of Man, that's a title that refers to his humanity. And it's especially important here in the book of Revelation because that relates to Christ's ability to understand the persecution and all of the afflictions that go on in the church. But as we come here to uh, chapter 2 and verse number 18, we see a change here where Christ is now called the Son of God. And he's called the one who has eyes like a fire and he has feet that are like brass. And what this speaks of is Christ in his role as judge. Brass in the Bible is a type of judgment. 
And the fire that it's mentioned here is like a refiner's fire. Remember, the Apostle Paul talked about the fire that will try every man's work. And this is what uh, uh, Jesus is alluding to here. He has a... He has Eyes that are like a refiner's fire, and he can see what kind of works we have. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, verse number 13, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. So here we find that Jesus is sitting in judgment upon this church, And as in the three previous cases that we've read with the other churches, he finds something in the church that he can commend. I think he had to look very closely. I think he had to scrutinize this very finely to find out if there was something good in the church. But it turns out that there was. Here here is a church that's on a brink of terrible apostasy, and yet Jesus says there are some good things that I'd like to mention to you. Now, number one, as we think about what Jesus says, we're going to look at the positives detected about this church. Verse number 19 is a very short verse of positives among many things that are said negatively. Verse 19 says, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works. And I said, notice that he mentions works twice. And the last to be more than the first. So there are some good things that he says about this church. Let's let's talk about what those are. The first we find, the first good thing about the church is that love was present. Somehow, in the middle of the great trials that this church was under and the threat of destruction was hanging over their heads, still love could be found in this church. There were still some people in the church that were clinging on as a remnant to Christ-like love. And they showed this in their lives And it's likely that because they were engaged in some sort of loving process that that God had not caused swift destruction to come upon them already. In many ways, they had been disobedient to Christ, and we'll see it in just a moment. So their love was there. There was still some there. It was a faltering love. It was a love that hadn't led them to correct the problems in the church. And love really is an underlying foundation for right practice. And since this church did not have right practice, then it's evident that there must have been numerous cracks in this foundation of love. So they have a love that's just barely holding on. But we have a God who sees all, and he's able to see even this very small sliver of love that's there. And so he gives a commendation to this church about love, even though their love is in a very imperfect form. And as we look at this, uh, I was reminded as I thought about this, about the Apostle Peter. Remember that Peter had love that really was imperfect. Jesus came to Peter and he asked him, and he said, Peter, do you love me more than these? And each time that Peter responded to that question, he said, yes, Lord, I love you. And every time that he responded, he responded to Jesus' question with a word for love that is an inferior word. Finally, Jesus accepted his love because he knew something about the apostle Peter. This was Peter who, not long before this, just before his crucifixion, had denied Jesus three times. And so Jesus knew that there was love in his heart, but it was an imperfect love. And so he saw something in Peter, a love that could be cultivated, a love that would grow, and so Peter then would be able to use and be used in other avenues of service. And so perhaps this is the same thing that Jesus saw in the church at Thyatira. 
there was some love that was still here. And so instead of Jesus just knocking them down and going on, he tells them that if that love would grow, if they would repent, if they would turn from their wicked works, then that small flame of love that they had in their church could become a burning fire again. Then he also detected another good quality about this church. Uh, Secondly, their service was prevalent. I've said twice already that he said, I know your works. And he said that two times. And this means that this is a church that was carrying on business. There were people in the church that were still trying. Some people did want to serve the Lord. But the problem in the church is that problem I mentioned a moment ago. It's a problem of leadership. And whenever your leadership in the church is wrong, what it will do is stifle the good works of the people. But Jesus, who is the judge of all, who sees all, who knows all, is a judge who judges righteously. And so when he sees those good works, then he will judge them accordingly. If you remember, Jesus said that even a cup of cold water given in the name of disciple will not lose its reward. And so Jesus saw this love, and even though it was small, there was very little there, yet he commended them for it. And I think that there are many of us that need to understand that works that we do for the Lord in the church, there is nothing that we do here that's too small for the Lord to recognize. I suspect that when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, that many of you right here in Brian Baptist Church, you'll receive rewards perhaps that you didn't even expect, that God was looking at those small things that you did, and he rewards you for those. And then I think there are maybe some of us in the church who will go before Christ at the judgment seat and stick our hands out and expect the reward, and no reward will be given. You see, Jesus has a record of everything that we do. But then there was a third thing detected in the church, and that is that faith was persistent. I think it'd be easy for us to look at the faith that they had in this church and look at the things that they did in this letter, and and we would say, well, how could these people do such things? How, how could they go so far off? How, how can they be so mixed up in the way that they serve the Lord? And we can judge these people very harshly because we don't live in the time that they lived. We haven't gone through what they've gone through. We haven't experienced this. We're not a people that has to go hungry because of our stand for the Lord. Even if you were to lose your job, there are still resources that are available in our country. And so it's very easy for us to criticize these people and say, what's wrong with their faith? Now, these people lived in this time. They went through horrible persecution, and there was still something detectable there about their faith. It may have been waning. It may have been weak. But there was still some faith that was in this church. And the remarkable thing about this is that God can take even a small seed of faith As he says, even a seed of faith like the size of the grain of a mustard seed, and God can take that kind of faith and he can turn it into a strong, vibrant, growing tree. But the problem with many Christians today is that we have little faith. We're living in a time when we really ought to have great faith. I mean, we don't have the persecution. We don't have anybody trying to take jobs away from us. We're not living in all the things that they're going through. We're we're not likely to lose our jobs or lose our livelihoods because of our faith. And yet, we, as Christians today, we are the biggest whiners and complainers on the planet. Now, I don't think that we need to wonder what happened to their faith. The question we ought to be asking ourselves is, what happened to our faith? Why don't we have great faith? 
And we're going to see this in just a moment, that even without great persecution, there are many churches today who have fallen into the very same types of errors that Thyatira was in. Now, let's move on then to the second part of our discussion. And this concerns problems that demoralize the church. This church had problems all the way down to the core. I mean, right down to the very roots of how a church is supposed to operate, things that a church are supposed to focus on, this church had a problem there. And so in verse number 20, we open up here with a scathing rebuke. He says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, who calleth herself a prophetess. Now, I didn't emphasize that because these two ladies were walking up the aisle. But it says, That lady, that woman Jezebel, who calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, verse number 20 points out a very serious error in this church, and it's the error that upsets God's order of this universe. God has a perfect plan, and God follows that plan to the letter. And God put this world together with design and with purpose, and whenever you upset God's design, bad things are going to happen. Now, here is the first major problem in this church. First, they had the wrong person in leadership. Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach. Now, the first thing I want to ask you is, when did you ever hear the name Jezebel, and that conjured up some kind of good thoughts in your mind? It doesn't, does it? I mean, uh, have you ever met anybody named Jezebel? Any of you parents named one of your children Jezebel? Well, you don't do that. And that's because Jezebel is tied to everything that we can think wrong with a woman. A woman is a Jezebel when she's a person who deceives. She's a Jezebel when she takes control of a man. She's a Jezebel when, with meanness and spite, she does everything to please herself and none to please others. Most of you already know that the name Jezebel comes from a very wicked woman that we find in the Old Testament... And this was a woman that was married to King Ahab. Ahab might have turned out to be a pretty decent fellow if he hadn't married Jezebel. But after he did, uh, he earned a distinction of being worse than any king who ever lived before him. And that's what God says about him. He's mentioned several times in that light. He was worse than anybody who lived before or after him. Now, take your Bible, if you would, and we're going to turn to 1 Kings chapter 16 for just a moment, and we're going to do a little bit of reading here. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel ruled the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were enemies of God's people and enemies of God's prophet Elijah. Elijah was a thorn in the side to both Jezebel and Ahab, but particularly, Elijah just rubbed Jezebel totally the wrong way. She hated him, and so they became bitter enemies. Now, I want you to look at verse number 29. This is when Ahab first came to power, and it tells us a little bit about what went on. In verse number 29, it says, In the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. 
And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all kings of Israel that were before him. In his days did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid the foundations thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. I'm not going to talk so much about Ahab tonight, but he was kind of typical of a spineless man, either in the home or in the church, who lets a woman run over him and take control. Now, the problem here is that Ahab married Jezebel, and she was the daughter of a heathen king, and and she was a woman who was fully dedicated to the worship of this god, Baal. Baal was a Canaanite fertility god. And so Jezebel did everything that she could to turn the, the people's hearts away from Jehovah God and begin to worship this heathen god of Baal until finally the worship of Baal did become prominent in Israel. So Elijah, who was God's prophet, protested about that, and so he challenged Jezebel's prophets to a duel. It was a duel of gods. Now, I still remember standing there on Mount Carmel in Israel where this showdown took place. And this is a, it was an awesome thought to stand there and think about uh, Elijah calling down fire from heaven to consume his sacrifice. There, Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal. And on this particular day, Elijah ended up killing 450 of Jezebel's prophets. And if there wasn't bad blood between those two before, there certainly was now. And so Jezebel swore upon her life that she was going to kill Elijah. Well, she wasn't able to do that. And in fact, she's the one who met an untimely end. If we go into the book of 2 Kings, we we find that Elijah had prophesied that the dogs would come and lick up the blood of Jezebel. And in the book of 2 Kings, we find out that Jezebel was thrown from, a, from the town wall. They threw her down, and her, her body hit the ground and splattered blood all over the pavement and all over the walls of the city. They waited a little while, for they went back to retrieve her. They, they decided to go, actually, if you read the story, uh, they decided to go in and have a meal and have a little bit of a feast before they turned their attention to go pick up Jezebel. Finally, the, the, the king says, well, go out there, or the one who's taken over kingship, he says, go out there and let's give her a burial because she is at least, you know, she was the king's wife and, and uh, she had positions, so let's at least go bury her. And when they went out to get her, all they could find were her feet, her skull, and the palms of her hands. And just like Elijah had prophesied, the dogs came and ate her. Well, since that time... This uh, name Jezebel has come to symbolize a a brash and berating and obnoxious woman. It's the type of woman who will pretty up her face to please you, and then while you're not looking, she stabs you in the back. And so this is really a woman who who is outside of God's given role where she ought to be. Now that's why I said a moment ago that she upset God's order. She was to be in subjection to her husband, She was to be in subjection in her worship, in her home. And that is a principle that God set forth that stretches all the way back before the laws that were given by Moses. In fact, this goes all the way back to the very Garden of Eden, that God set that as a principle that the woman is in subjection to the man. 
Now, I think it's interesting here that in the book of Revelation that Jesus calls this woman Jezebel. That probably wasn't really her name, but she had all the characteristics of Jezebel in the Old Testament. She had gained authority in this church, and so she became a teacher there. She was a prophetess, and I said a minute ago, that that means she was a preacher. And so what she did, she stepped out of God's given role, and she went into the leadership of the church, and that caused problems. Now, let me read to you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. What I'm, what I'm going to say to you tonight, there are a lot of things here that aren't popular in churches today, and lots of people have forgotten about what God's Word really says about these things, or if they haven't forgotten them, they've ignored what God's Word says. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, Paul said, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Remember when we studied this, I said this next phrase, actually goes with verse number 34, so we're going to read it that way. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. As in all churches of the saints, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, remember, Paul said this, not me. Uh, so don't take it out on me. Listen to what Paul says in First Timothy. He says, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Now, what happened in the church at Thyatira, they broke that command. And they allowed a woman to assume the place of leadership and take a place where she should not have been. Now, some people will think that I'm unkind in what I'm about to say next, but I have one word for women pastors and women deacons in churches, and that's the word Jezebel. Whenever a church lets a female pastor take over, they might as well put a sign right out in front of the church, Come and hear Jezebel because that's exactly what she is. You can turn on your television today, and you can watch Joyce Jezebel Myers, if you like, and you can watch Gloria Jezebel Copeland and all of that bunch, but these are women who have stepped outside of God's given role. And so any woman who goes into the leadership of the church to assume a responsibility and an office that God has only given to the man, she is a Jezebel. And a pastor who stands by, or people who stand by and let a woman do that, they're Ahabs. And when a woman gets up into the church and she makes a speech from the pulpit while a sorry pastor looks on approvingly, she's a Jezebel and he's an Ahab. I know that's not popular for me to say that, but this is very clear here in the Scriptures because Jesus, with contempt, Jesus himself said, you let that woman who calls herself a preacher to seduce my servants. John Phillips writes, so there she stood. She was probably a very attractive woman, no doubt possessed of a charming personality, a most persuasive tongue, forceful ideas, and great leadership qualities. She was, it would seem, a woman who put most men in the shade. Her husband and the board of elders ate out of her hand. That woman Jezebel. It may not have been her real name, but it fit her like a glove. Do you know another another serious error that has grown out of people not knowing the place of the woman in the church? It's the idea that the Roman Catholics had today called Mariolatry. That's the worship of the Virgin Mary. 
And that's where they elevate Mary to be a co-redeemer and a, a co, uh, co-equal with Christ. Elevation of women in leadership and in the church leads into the grossest of errors, and that's one of the errors that led Roman Catholicism into this practice of Mariolatry. So here's where this whole thing starts out. This is the problem in the church. They have the wrong person in leadership. And inevitably, when you have wrong people in leadership, what are you going to get? You're going to get wrong doctrine. You'll get wrong teaching in the church. So that's second. Here's the problem. Next problem in the church. They had the wrong precepts of doctrine. Now, in this church, it was taught that it was all right for the people to continue on with heathen practices of adultery and, and of eating things that were sacrificed to idols. And the thought that they had was that what you do in your body doesn't really matter. I mean, they had the idea that uh, our spirit is going to go to heaven, and so the body is going to decay, it's going to pass away, and so you can indulge anything that you want to do in your body because it's not going to make a difference. And so these are people who thought that, or, or believed in that, God was only interested in their spirit. The body is intrinsically evil, and and so the body will pass away. And you might remember that is the very same thing that Paul confronted in the city of Corinth. And as we studied that, we saw how that Paul debunked all of that stuff with very clear teachings on the resurrection of the body. But that error still persisted at the time of the church at Thyatira. They were still teaching it, and the error is still present today. Some of you may recognize it in the era of Jehovah Witnesses. They also believe that there is no resurrection of the body. So down through the history of the church, there's, always, there, there's come about this mixture of idol worship and eating things that have been sacrificed to idols. I talked to you about that a few weeks ago as we discussed Constantine and how he wed uh, the government with the church and combined that, and that's where we got the Roman Catholic Church. But one of the things that these heathens practice, and we read it right here in the scripture, is they ate things that were sacrificed to idols. Do you know where the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation came from? Now, maybe you don't know what that is, but that's in their practice of the Mass, that when they consecrate the bread and the wine, they believe that it's actually turned into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the Mass is actually a sacrifice of Christ. That's what it's all designed to be. And so every single week, they sacrifice Christ again and again and again. And then what do they do? They eat their sacrifice. This is the very same thing we have right here in the book of Revelation. They eat things sacrificed to idols and That's a problem with the church. Here's what happens when you turn leadership upside down. You're going to get the inevitable result of wrong doctrine. And we find that's true in churches around our country, in churches where there are women pastors. There are errors in those churches. You find the errors of speaking in tongues. You You find errors about the atonement of Christ. They don't understand that. They don't really understand justification by faith alone. They don't understand sanctification, and they get that mixed up. And then it even leads into more serious errors. And what do you find in churches today? They're going right back to the same practices that they had in the church at Thyatira, the church at Corinth, and other places, the church at Rome. And that is they allowed homosexuals into the church, gay marriage, gay clergy. And this is what you have. It's all mixed up. Just this afternoon, as we were 
Uh, my nephew, uh, Tim, was here this morning in the services, and this afternoon we were waiting for him to, to leave and go to San Francisco to catch an airplane. And so I was, we were watching television there, and there was one of these commercials about Prop- Proposition 8 on the television. And the crowd tonight, I'm going to tell you the same thing I told the Sunday school class this morning. Vote yes on Prop- Proposition 8. I can tell you that. I mean, that's okay as the pastor of the church for me to tell you that. Vote yes on Proposition 8. But there was a commercial on television where there was a, it was one of the ones that was telling us to vote no. Feinstein and was on there and a few of the others. But I noticed that there was one particular person on that, on that commercial and it was a woman cleric, a woman priest. And she was encouraging people to vote no on Proposition H, or 8, rather. And so here's what you find. You find these kinds of errors. When you get women into leadership, you are going to have problems because you can't end up with correct doctrine. It's not God's plan. It upsets God's order. Now, thirdly, we find in this church that they had the wrong practice in service. Let me give this to you just briefly. But uh, I have heard some people say, some Christians say, that to really understand the problems that Christians go through, you have to go through those problems yourself. And so they would tell you that in order for you to understand drunkenness, that you must go get drunk. That sounds strange to you, but there are people who actually believe that. I mean, you, in order to experience what people go through to understand it, then if they have a problem with drunkenness, you need to go get drunk. I remember there was a young man who had the same principal who came to our church in Kentucky when I was in the youth department, what, 10 years ago, something, whatever that was, but when I was in the youth department, and I can remember that uh, this young man came to speak to us, and he had what he thought was a better handle on how to work with young people. And so uh, he said that in order to better handle the pressures that young people go through, why they get involved with things like sex and pornography and all those kinds of things, that in order to help them out and understand it better, that what he needed to do was to attend X-rated pornographic movies so he could understand where they were coming from. Well, at the end of that sentence, he was out. He was gone from our church, I'll tell you that. Well, you see... The church here was mixed up right down the line. All these things are wrong. And what it did, it demoralized this church. And what happened was they were insensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. They didn't understand things. Their minds were corrupted. All these heathen practices had come in. And it's all due to this upset in leadership. And I might mention also that there are denominations today that have been started by women... Christian scientists, for example, that that was started by a woman. There are groups that are heavily influenced by the teachings of women. And one of those that I can think of are the Seventh-day Adventists, who put the writings of Ellen G. White above that of Scripture itself. So many are influenced by that. And what this does, it upsets God's order. This is an order, as I said, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And when you upset the order, there will be trouble. Now, let's uh, finalize this message tonight with this. Number three is predictions of discipline for the church. In verse number 21, we find the long-suffering nature of our Savior. You know, we ought to be thankful about this, that, that when we sin, God does not immediately cut us off at the knees. I'm amazed sometimes when I go back and I read these problems that these churches had and, and still to 
see here that Christ considered them his churches. I mean, he's still holding on to these people. And so in verse number 21, he says, I gave her space to repent of her fornication. Now, this is pretty bad stuff. But what Christ would rather do is to bring us back rather than to cast us off. And so he gave her time to repent. But we notice here that with space to repent, people don't always repent. And so what God has to do, he brings chastisement. So let's look in this case. We see judgment for non-repentance. Verse 21 says, And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Christians are not going to be judged in eternity for our sins. Our sins have already been paid for by Jesus at the cross, and so there's not one of us who will have to go into judgment and worry that God is going to hold our sins up and condemn us because of sin. Christ has already taken care of that for us. But one thing that he will not do, he will not let us go on sinning, not in this life without chastisement. He will bring chastisement. And really, that's one of the ways that we know that we belong to the Lord. You ought to thank the Lord for chastisement. I mean, even when it's troublesome, when it's hard on you, thank the Lord for chastisement because that's one of the ways that you know that you're one of his children. In this particular case, God brought the worst form of chastisement, and that's death. You may not believe this, but what God can do in his chastisement, he can bring death to you, he can bring it to your children, and he may bring it to people who are close to you. In the scriptures, we find that David's baby died because of David's sin. Paul talks about people in Corinth. In just a few minutes, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And he talks about people in Corinth that abused the Lord's Supper, and they wouldn't repent of that, and so God took their lives. So Jesus says in these verses, I'm doing this. I want everyone to know that I am the one who searches the heart. And if you're a Christian, you'll find out that God knows exactly what's in your heart, and he knows exactly what you do. He's watching everything you do, and the Scripture says he's going to reward you for your works. But then secondly, we see in the Scriptures another group of people, and these are ones who did heed the message of Jesus. And we find for these people judges for the remnant. They're going to rule with Christ. Now look at verse 24. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, in other words, you haven't gone into this, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye all have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my words unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Here's a promise that we find repeated over and over in Scripture. And that is, if unfaithfulness has its type of reward, and we saw what that was, the terrible chastisement of death, then faithfulness to Christ, remaining faithful to him, certainly has a much better reward. And so what are we guaranteed to have if we 
maintain our faith in Christ. And if we hold close to him and we don't forsake him, well, the Bible says that we're going to reign with him. There are many questions that are asked about rewards. And you know, people want to know, what are our rewards going to be like? And how are we going to enjoy those rewards? What is that all about? And I'll have to tell you, I really don't know. I know some things about it, you know, some things that have been revealed in Scripture. But the Bible doesn't really tell us a whole lot about what those rewards are and how we're going to use those rewards. But here's one thing I certainly do know, that one of our rewards is to have power with Christ. He says, He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. You know, I think that's an awesome prospect. I know that it's very unlikely that I'll ever be president of the United States. I think it's highly unlikely that I'm going to be involved in any powerful political office. I'm not going to have a power in any human government in this world. But I do know this, that I am going to be in a government, and it's the most powerful government that the world has ever seen. And that's the government that Jesus Christ himself will establish when he comes. So I'm going to have power over the nations, the Scripture says. In the millennial kingdom, when Christ comes back, his people are going to rule with him. Now that's going to be a great reward. I'm looking forward to that. But there's something else in this verse that I'm looking forward to more than even that. In verse number 28, he says, And I will give him the morning star. What is the morning star? Well, listen to this Scripture. Revelation 22, verse 16 I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. Listen to this part. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So here's our last statement tonight. My gift, my reward is Jesus who is the morning star. Now once again in that statement we see the eternal nature of Christ. I I pointed this out before that the root and the offspring of David points to the eternality of Jesus Christ. He's not a created being. He was before David. He's the root of David, and at the same time, the offspring of David, which means he's eternal. Here's what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Jesus has risen in my heart. And I hope for every one of you that are sitting here tonight that the same thing has happened to you. He's the bright and morning star, and I pray that he's risen also in your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great truths that we learn from your word. Just beautiful pictures that we see of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to think about what he has done for us And to know, Lord, that we need to remain faithful. We need to look for your coming. And we know that there is a reward for our faithfulness. And the best reward of all is to know you in a more intimate way. To be able to see you face to face and to rule and to reign with you forever and forever. Lord, I pray for our people tonight. I pray for each one in this room this evening that they do know you. And as we've just stated, that the day star, the morning star has arisen in their hearts. Bless in this time of invitation, and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing.